0: Our scripture reading this morning is the first chapter of Haggai, which is the third last book of the Old Testament. It's on page 916 of your Pew Bible. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltil, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Let's pray lord i ask that you bless this reading of your word that you prepare our hearts and our ears to hear the message that you would have us take this morning and i pray lord that you would have your hand on pastor uri now as he prepares to come that you would give him a sense of profound peace and confidence that you would give him the words that you would have him share with us this morning in jesus name amen
1: As Mark said earlier, the theme of this series about Haggai is consider your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. And that's what I propose that we do over the next four weeks as we study this tiny book that contains Haggai's very brief prophecies. Now, the message that I'm going to preach this morning turned out quite differently from what I had envisioned at the beginning of the week, as as I called out to Mark earlier on in the service. So the central truth of the message that's in your bulletin, I would revise in this way. I'll turn on my pointer, and I will have more success. There we go. God challenges us to give careful thought to our ways not only to what we do, but also our thoughts about the times we live in. God challenges us to give careful thought to our ways, not only to what we do, but also our thoughts, our understanding, our convictions about the times that we live in. So this message is really an introduction to the book of Haggai rather than exposition of the text. So we won't actually get too far into the text this week, Instead, we're going to seek to answer two questions that recognize the fact that the book of Haggai is largely unknown to most people. So the question, first question we'll seek to answer is this, why study Haggai? Or more to the point, why study Haggai right now? And the second question we'll seek to answer is, what is the context in which the book was written? What was the context, maybe more specifically, that the prophecies were given? And along the way, I'll propose a way of reading history that I hope will help us to consider our ways, and that is our actions and our convictions, more effectively. And I'm just going to pray before I continue. Lord God, focus my mind to quiet my thoughts so many things running through focus us all on you speak lord through your word to your people amen so why haggai this is a fair question we've had two long years of pandemic we're just starting to emerge from our homes, somewhat relieved but still uncertain, many of us still disoriented, nursing grief and hurt. We've got a war in the world that's a waking nightmare which doesn't seem to be ending soon. We've got gas prices and food prices flaring up that may already be beyond anyone's ability to tamp down. We've got a global famine on the horizon. And these are on top of all the other realities that have been plaguing us for years, even decades. Environmental degradation, social disintegration, loneliness, empty lives, empty churches. So why Haggai? And I'm going to put the question in a way that's probably more crass than any of you would frame it, but I can be a little bit um, irreverent sometimes. And I think it gets to the heart of the question a little more quickly. If we are in dire need of hope, why waste time in the Old Testament? And especially, why spend time on a guy, Haggai, some minor prophet that hardly anyone has ever heard of, let alone reads? What does the Old Testament have to do with hope? First and foremost, the Old Testament gives us hope because it points us to Jesus. But associated with that, the Old Testament also gives us hope because it helps us to stand back and perceive the patterns of history, our place in God's story, Understanding how the Spirit of the Eternal Son was active in the world prior to being made the Word made flesh prompts us to look for the ways that he is still at work in our times. Also, since the New Testament spans only a few decades, neglecting the Old Testament, which spans thousands of years, threatens to make us nearsighted. If we don't read the whole Bible, we risk being ignorant of the richness of God's plan and prone to despair when God seems far off. The Old Testament shows us the incredible variety of ways that God has interacted in real time with real people through their good times and in their bad times. It offers hope, since it points not only to how he has saved us through Christ Jesus, but also how he is sustaining us by his Spirit, and how he will continue to reveal himself to us, continue to revive us. But why Haggai? (laughs) Well, in Haggai, especially, I find many Parallels, many echoes of the things we're facing today. Like us, Haggai was living at a moment of exciting innovation and broad religious tolerance, but these were at the same time the products of rapid change, of massive political upheavals and shifting values. Like us, Haggai was living in a time of profound dislocation, And while unlike most of us, for him and his people, it was a literal dislocation in the form of a very real exile in a far-off country, 70 years spent in the belly of the world's most feared superpower, and then a return to the desolate landscape of their ruined homeland. Like us, it was also a cultural dislocation. Like us, the old ways no longer made sense. Like us, the familiar stories of their place in the world seemed demonstrably false. Like us, their everyday habits and assumptions, things that grounded them and which they historically had taken for granted, were up in the air. Like us, the work they did, the families they built, the language that they spoke and the way they wrote it down, the people they did business with and fell in love with, the ways they defined success, the way they worshipped God, all were in a constant state of flux. And there are other parallels as well. Like us, they looked back a few hundred years to the founders of their nation for inspiration. Like us, they knew that Somewhere along the line, things had gone seriously wrong. Like us, there was an obvious break with their past. Now, the biggest difference is that they could see that that break was entirely negative. They lived in a destroyed world and broken down buildings, navigating streets that for whole lifetimes remained blocked by piles of rubble, contending with major inconveniences, not to mention hostile neighbors who frustrated their attempts to move forward and rebuild. But their break with the past was not total. They had not forgotten the words of the prophets, the words from God that warned them of the consequences for turning from his ways, the consequences that they themselves were still dealing with. Unlike us, they recognize the need for daily repentance. That's not our perspective. Even when we get down about it, we tend to see our break with the past as more of a mixed blessing, a shrewd bargain where the benefits far outweigh the sacrifices. That may be because for us, the destruction is mostly hidden paved over with a century of brilliant innovations that make our day-to-day lives easier and safer. And though we have access to more information about the past than any civilization ever has before us, we tend not to pay nearly as much attention to it. The modern age is unique in history in that it considers itself just as good and fulfilling as any age that has gone before if not more so. In fact, that's one of the main ways we define the world we've built. You may or may not think that the way things are is particularly good, but at least it's better than things used to be. Whether or not that's true is actually not something Bible-believing Christians ought to be particularly concerned about. Ecclesiastes tells us, don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. But it's equally clear that we ought not to get too excited about progress, either. Regardless of the achievements of the past or the present, the Bible teaches us that since the Fall, every generation is corrupt. Every person is lost and in need of redemption. Still. Every generation, every person is important to God, and we must be alive to the past and skeptical of the present to evaluate our current situation wisely, to find opportunities for the kingdom hidden in apparent misfortune. Studying the Old Testament helps us to remember that it is God who is really in control of history, of our stories. It teaches us to submit to him, to obey him, and to trust him, knowing that he has always sustained his people through the times that they have felt the most abandoned. But studying the Old Testament not only teaches us about his mercy— It also teaches us how he tends to operate in discernible patterns. The kinds of things I was telling the kids about earlier. He works in cycles that take multiple centuries to complete. In the beginning, God establishes his people. After which they start to doubt him and his word. They become forgetful and lax. Long periods of gradually increasing declension and disobedience lead to utter ignorance and vulnerability to oppression, culminating in catastrophe, obscurity, uncertainty, invasion, slavery, (laughs) exile, when only a small remnant remembers and serves the Lord faithfully. But all along the way, God raises up faithful leaders to sustain and remind his people in the deepening darkness of his faithfulness. And eventually, he revives them. He renews and restores them and once again establishes them. And the pattern starts again. Since God works according to his own purposes and pleasure, and since the world is always changing, each cycle looks Different, with different structures and practices and emphases. But the cycle follows the same basic outline. Establishment. Doubt. Forgetfulness. Looseness. Disobedience. Ignorance. Vulnerability. Oblivion. Renewal. Restoration. Re-establishment. The six men I taught the kids this morning... Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Ezra, and Jesus give us a rubric through which to understand biblical history. They're not the only ones God uses at the high point of each cycle, but nevertheless, each one is intimately connected with one of six major renewal cycles that the Bible outlines. It should be emphasized that the history of these cyclical renewals is largely confined to the Bible, because most historians, the kind of historians who pay attention to the broad outlines of world history, wouldn't recognize them as meaningful or significant. The world's historians tend to take what people say about themselves with a grain of salt, and for good reason. As the old adage goes, history is written by the victors, right? So they prefer to sift through a civilization's ruins, writings, and garbage on their own terms, ultimately piecing together a story that seeks to make sense of all the available data. And this is a reasonable approach if you're not dealing with a divinely inspired text like the Bible. Most historians today would acknowledge that if they are in a position to be influential, they by definition are currently history's winners. And the stories they tell cannot help but reflect their own biases. The Bible, on the other hand, does not indulge in what we call hagiography. In other words, it uniquely does not glorify or idealize its heroes. Not only in the Old Testament, but throughout all of God's people are presented warts and all. The whole point as the redeemed thug Saul, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, as he was so eager to point out, the whole point is, it is by grace that we have been saved. Now, in 1 Corinthians one to 27-29, Paul expands on this, stating it even more forcefully, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. So unlike any other historical text, the Bible does not set out to tell the story of the world from the viewpoint of the victors. That's why it's so miraculous that the words it contains have survived for thousands of years. They've been divinely protected and preserved and will continue to be preserved. Of that, we can be certain, and in that, we must play our part. So for the believer, a cyclical understanding of history gleaned from the word of God is helpful because unlike more well-known interpretive frameworks it doesn't try to do too much. It doesn't privilege the present at the expense of the future. In good times a cyclical understanding of history teaches you to store up abundance against the lean times. In bad times it reminds you that no matter how things appear now God is still in control that faithfulness is still required and that we will see justice done and the earth renewed. The cyclical view looks forward to the true end of history, to when Christ returns, but it doesn't allow us to presume upon the present, to make assumptions about the role of any nation or church or race, or to trace false trajectories of human progress so-called. Understanding that things have been bad before also preserves us from despair about the state of the present. It soothes our anxieties about the apparent setbacks of our nation or church or a favored political philosophy. It helps us to obediently follow God through a fog of apparent uncertainty and faithfully bring up the next generation of believers. It's a way that we can do exactly what God tells his people to do through the prophet Haggai. Consider. Give careful thought to your ways. Your ways, which refers to the people's life course or pattern, including both behaviors and their consequences, as well as convictions or beliefs. So now turn with me if you've closed your Bibles, turn with me once again to the book of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. This kind of precise timestamp is rare in the Bible. We really only get it in the books written around the time of the exile, which probably reflects the cultural influence of the Babylonians and the Persians. They were people who kept very precise records. What's cool about it is we know pretty much exactly when Haggai heard from God. It was a remarkable time and a remarkable move of God in the span between what we would call the end of August 520 through February 519 B.C., God spoke to his people through the prophet Haggai five times and the prophet Zechariah two times. To anyone with an interest in biblical apologetics as well, it's remarkable how we have preserved for us the records not only of the words themselves, but also the independent corroboration of two separate prophets whose words, instructions, and visions from the Lord work hand in glove and build on one another, and grow to a climax. Let's take a look at this. God first spoke to Haggai on August 29th, 520 BC. Then again on September 21st, and then October 17th. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah for the first time somewhere in the next few weeks after that. Then God's last words through Haggai came on December 18th, and Haggai records that God spoke twice to him on that day. Finally, on February 15th, God revealed to Zechariah a series of eight fantastic visions that fill up the first six chapters of his book, which is next in the Bible. To cap it all off, we find references to Haggai and Zechariah's independent yet complementary ministries in the book of Ezra as well. We probably have more specific information regarding the last six months of this Hebrew year than any other period in the Old Testament. It was a torrent of partnered prophecy, which as far as we know has no parallel. It certainly was not typical, is not typical. God used these two men to inform to stir up, to challenge, to inspire, and to encourage the remnant of his people. At the very least, this shows us how God reveals himself not as a monolithic, distant dictator, but as a personal, intimately involved in the details of the lives of his people, a personal God. He doesn't just have one mode of working, one message, one imposing brand. He knows his people, and he speaks to them and works through them in real time, in real places, creatively tailoring the means as well as the message according to their gifts and shortcomings, according to their specific challenges and opportunities. More than this, knowing the precise dates God spoke through Haggai and Zechariah highlights this unique moment this one-time situation which God addressed through his prophets. What was this moment? 520 BC, the returned exiles had been in the land for nearly 20 years. By edict of the former Persian emperor, Cyrus, they were there for the express purpose of rebuilding God's temple in Jerusalem. This is recorded at the beginning of the book of Ezra and also at the end of 2 Chronicles. But after some initial success, they faced daunting opposition, sustained opposition from those Ezra calls in Ezra 4, verse 4, the people of the land. We're not told exactly who these people were. Some, at least, were Gentiles, powerful and hostile. But others were fellow Jews, those who had been left behind to scrabble amid the ruins when the city had been leveled almost 70 years before. They were hard-headed, maybe more than a little resentful. They'd learned how to make do for this long, how to survive on very little and worship on their own terms without a temple. So why this push to build some fancy building after all this time? In fact, long before this time, God had made a distinction between those he called the good figs and those he called the bad figs. The ones who were sent into exile being the good figs and those who remained or fled to Egypt he called the bad figs. You can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 24. This description sounds pretty bad, but it probably had more to do with their fate than with their inherent worth in God's eyes, their purity or their devotion, since Jeremiah himself remained behind. He was a so-called bad fig who was eventually kidnapped by a gang of bloodthirsty freedom fighters and carried off to live out the rest of his days in Egypt. Nevertheless, the descendants of the bad figs were likely among those who discouraged the people, who made them afraid to build, who even bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose, as Ezra says. And we're told they did this all the days of Cyrus, even until the reign of Darius. The last verse of Ezra 4 tells us, the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That is, the worksite, the foundation of the temple, sat there unfinished on the top of the hill for over 15 years. Cyrus died not many years after they had arrived back in Jerusalem, and his immediate successor was more interested in fighting wars than in seeing that his predecessor's edict was carried out. In the meantime, it seems that the returned exiles, discouraged by internal controversy, frightened by menacing neighbors, frustrated by government officials and the hoops they were made to jump through, just focused on what they could do. They reintegrated, they reestablished themselves in the land, they rebuilt their old houses, They farmed, they pursued whatever business opportunities came along, they took care of their families, and they'd make their way to the forlorn altar, filing to the top of the hill to offer sacrifices. Like so many of us who start out with ambitious plans, they got distracted. They compromised. Adopting the pragmatic ways of the survivors. They got comfortable. A little too comfortable with making do in their half-built surroundings. They got used to the way things are. Maybe they even found a certain romance, making a go of it in the grit and the decay. But then, the word of the Lord came. By the hand of Haggai, the prophet. To Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. In this situation, God stirred up first Haggai, then Zechariah. Over six inspiring months, they offered messages from God specially designed for the different people and groups God wanted to address. First, Haggai brought a word of challenge to the hereditary leaders, Zerubbabel, heir to David's throne and grandson of one of the last kings, though currently just a provincial governor in the Persian Empire, and Joshua, the high priest. Then, on two occasions, Haggai offered words of encouragement to the remnant that had enthusiastically responded to their leaders. Then it was Zechariah's turn. He proclaimed a general call to repentance to all the people. On one single day, Haggai then brought his last words, one a probing question and word of hope for the priests, the other a promise to Zerubbabel that the broken line of David, however abandoned, however desolate, it may have seemed was not, in fact, finished. Which reminds me of a line from Tolkien. Renewed shall be crown that was broken, and the crownless again shall be king, or something along those lines. All that is gold does not glitter is how that starts. Similar situation. And then finally there was the grand finale the profusion of mysterious visions, to Zechariah. After the exhilaration but ultimately disappointing return from exile, these were the new stirrings of renewal. These new stirrings of renewal that would flower with the arrival of Ezra and Nehemiah a few decades later, after which the promise would once again lie dormant centuries. Dormant, that is, until some more stirrings. The words of an angel to an old, dried-up priest in Jerusalem. Dormant until the same angel visited a virgin and her betrothed in Nazareth. Dormant until the promised baby Burst onto the scene in Bethlehem, accompanied by a chorus of angels and attended by simple shepherds and learned men. The fullest revelation of God to man. The one all the cycles of renewal pointed to. All those men who were intimately bound up with those glorious but all too fleeting times of renewal could now be seen to be pictures of the Messiah. All the men and women who carried the flickering flame of revival through the darkest nights found in him the fulfillment of every promise of renewal ever made. But before all that, before the words of challenge and hope given to Haggai and Zechariah, we're told in verse 6, of Haggai, how recently the distracted exiles, who may have been starting to forget what they were there for in the first place, even to forget what they had lost, were facing trials they couldn't account for. Their life, which had always been hard, was becoming impossible provoking a persistent sense of futility. They'd sow their fields liberally, only to find declining yields. They'd layer up, only to find themselves shivering from cold. They'd scarf their meals, only to find they were never full. They'd try and drown their sorrows, only to find the bottle failed to produce the desired effect. To top it all off, they kept finding themselves short, What money they scraped together by hiring themselves out never went as far as it should have. Verse 8 then tells us that even when they managed to set a little in store, it would mysteriously vanish. We too no longer have the ability to appreciate what we've lost. We, too, are far too often forgetful of what we're here for. We're consumed with pragmatic things, with pursuing a normal, comfortable life. But mysteriously, that life seems to be slipping away from us. We look for much, and it comes to little. We plow ever more resources into ever-diminishing returns. We're full while famished, buzzed but bleak, cozy yet cold. And our money, well, our money slips through our fingers ever more quickly, doesn't it? We don't know what is the value of a dollar. Through Haggai, God put his finger on the problem. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. God seems to be stating the obvious. But it must have been a fact that had eluded the leadership, maybe even the prophets. Otherwise, why would he need to say it? How about us? What do we say? And where are we in our cycle of renewal? Are there still cycles of renewal? I would say yes. And I would say that we are roughly in the same place in our cycle as Haggai was in his. Toward the end, seeing occasional stirrings of renewal, but with no obvious outpouring, knowing that things could still get a lot worse before they get better. But I'll save expanding on that analysis for another day. But still, my challenge to you this week is for you to ask yourselves in prayer, is it time? Are we the people? I mean, is it time for us to obey God and build his temple? And what will it even look like? For us, let's pray. Lord, we want to ask you how you would like to use us. And we put so many resources, so much effort into so many things that seem not to pan out. So many frustrations that we face in our world, so much more than frustration that we fail, face in our world. Failures, war, starvation looming. And we wonder, where, where are you? Why is your right arm hidden in the folds of your garment? Why is your church broken down? Why are people staying home, attending to their own houses? What can we do, Lord? Fill us with the desire to ask these questions these next four weeks. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.